Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Formula for Success. I'm David Coulthard and alongside me virtually in the studio in South Africa is Eddie Jordan. Now, I would normally like to have... A... <laughs> there you go. You've gone off. I never let you finish that sentence. I know, you've gone off early. You're always premature. I can't, I always do this too early, I yes, I know that. It's a trouble thing. It's a Jordan thing. It is a Jordan thing. Well, that's why, you know, early bird catching the worm, going off early, that's why you got all the sponsorship deals over the years. But anyway, I, I, I'm going to start nice, EJ, because it's a very big day. To me or to who? To you, to you. And for our listeners to understand, you have a very special celebration going on. And we were very lucky to have your lovely wife, Marie, join us on the podcast several months ago, and today you're celebrating 45 years of marriage. That's incredible. How lucky is she? Oh, my God. How she could be still she? riding a bike in Dublin. Oh, my God. Had she not had the chance to jump on that ferry and come to England with me. But anyway, yeah, it's been great. To be honest, 45 years, it seems to have gone away. When some people ask her, she said, how did you manage to do that? She says, well... He used to be away an awful lot, and that's her way of answering the description without sort of giving any credit to anybody about anything. So there you go. I was away a lot. Well, 45 years. I don't want to let that go at the moment, though, because that is remarkable. You know, I'm, I'm only 52, almost 53, so I was a wee boy. You could have been my son. <laughs> oh, my you God. Probably I'm, are. I'm, I'd be in for a big inheritance, <laughs> wouldn't I, if I was your son? <laughs> Should we talk Formula One? Because a lot has happened since uh, we, we spoke last. And, and I've missed you, DC. Where have you been, by the way? You know, I had to do a show without you the other week because we were running out of time. You were in the States. Then you went to Mexico. Then you went on a, a, a love nest trail with your new girlfriend and, and no one could find you. I mean, what is the story with <laughs> You? Have you lost interest or what's this? No, no, at all. And I don't know where you're getting that misinformation. Uh, I, I am actually going uh, for a few days skiing up in the mountains, but the, the bit after Mexico, I've been back and forward, you know, uh, getting things set up for the year and I've been incredibly busy. And I was actually on track yesterday at Silverstone on a damp circuit driving Vettel's World Championship um, V8 Red Bull, which was a lot of fun. It was a wee bit scary. You know, at 52, almost 53, I'm rattling down Hangar Straight, spray coming off the tyres. And when you've got downforce on a race car, as you know, then as long as there's not standing water, it's actually okay to drive in the wet. But when you sort of have changed of direction at Club Corner uh, or the, uh, the section that leads on to the Wellington Straight, if you start to slide because of a lack of grip and downforce, then I'm thinking, do I really do I really need to be doing this at my age? But it, it's great in another way that I think it keeps me connected 
to the challenges of driving a fast race car. Now, obviously, uh, Grand Prix cars have changed a lot since then, but I had the chance to drive the World Championship car at Silverstone last year as well. So I think that's setting me up for for my commentary and, and broadcasting this year. So I'm feeling pretty good about that. But shall we talk about... David, one of the... Yes? I've got to talk a little bit about that because for the listeners out there, the fact that when you go to the Grand Prix and you're, you're giving this, in my opinion, very valuable knowledge to the people and which they want to hear firsthand. I mean, you know and I know it's very easy to fake it, and which <laughs> Speak for yourself. regularly happens. But <laughs> I know all about that. Anyway, so when you actually have driven a car recently and you know about the, the, the understeer and the turn, when I was speaking with Jody the other week, Jody Schechter, um, he had no interest in driving, doesn't even want to go to the Grand Prix. So I admire the fact that you spend your own time going back, driving a car. Sure, it's pleasurable, but I'm sure there was a, a commercial aspect to this thing that you did yesterday as well, because I can't, did, can't imagine you did it for free. But uh, leaving those things aside, um, I think having the inside knowledge of being able to describe what you've done yesterday to the people over the air, I think it's invaluable. I really do. I agree, EJ. You know, here's a rare moment of us absolutely being aligned. It, it, it just puts me back in the cockpit and gives me that, that visual again. And uh, you've driven Silverstone, one of the great tracks, you know, rattling through Beckett's at high speed. It really gets your attention. So uh, lots of fun was had there. Um, I want to ask you about the big announcement that Madrid will be hosting a street circuit Grand Prix in 2026. Now, I want to read you our friend Stefano Domenicali's uh, release uh, or his quote, which he went, Madrid is an incredible city with amazing sporting and cultural heritage. And this is part of Formula One's vision to create a multi-day spectacle of sport and entertainment that delivers maximum value for the fans. Now, that's the key bit for me, this multi-day spectacle, because the Grand Prix is still very much where my attention is, my focus is, and I believe the majority of Formula One fans, that's where they're at. But this multi-day spectacle, you, you can probably relate to this more than I, because you're an entertainer, you tour with your band, you love getting up on stage. So how important do you actually think this is and how much of it is more just a, a question of trying to squeeze as much money out of the race race fans over the course of several days? Um, I've read this. Um, first of all, I think Stefano as a, a president has done a really, really good job. Um, I wasn't sure enough about him at the beginning because he'd come from Lamborghini, he'd come from Ferrari, so I knew him extremely well uh, and I have to applaud him. He's done a great job. Now let's look at the, 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 the Madrid. I would like to go further than that, David, because... We have for, I don't know how many years, 20 years, 30 years, 25 years, we've been to Barcelona to the new track when they went out on a limb. And, and, and after Barcelona had the Olympics, if you remember, they built a cert track. And it, it has been a really good track. And there has been a lot of Spanish drivers as a result of it. And of course, we all know that Alonso is still there. But he comes from Alcudia, which is the northwest. Um, I think the people of Catalan which we already know that there's big rifts in that country with different political views. Uh, and I think that they will be very upset. They'll be very upset that they will be seen no different to, we'll say, uh, uh, Melbourne taking the Grand Prix from Adelaide. I think there will be friction. I think it's not going to go terribly smoothly. But is it the right thing to do? I think if it's a street circuit in, in a major city like Madrid, I think it's perfect. Madrid is a very beautiful city. 
as indeed is Barcelona. So they're very blessed. They've got two amazing uh, venues there. But anyway, back to, to Madrid. We know about Real Madrid. We know Atletico Madrid. We know how culturally they are as far as football is concerned. Motor racing has caught everybody's eye. Everybody wants a Grand Prix now. And the cities, and and I'm not talking just about uh, Madrid. Perhaps later in the show we can talk about New York or London or Rome or Vancouver or, or other major, major cities um, that could put on a Grand Prix of this size. So I'm here in Cape Town. I, I spoke to Jody Schechter about having the Grand Prix here in Cape Town. And, and, and we had a, a Formula E race here last year, so it's not beyond the bounds of possibilities. Nevertheless, you asked me about this multi-day entertainment thing. I just don't know what he really, really means with that because it's confusing language to me and it's not clear. Okay. The, the fact that we now have got seven uh, Grand Prix street circuits and it'll go to eight in 26, this is quite a, a change from when we were involved, uh, you know, you and team ownership, me as a driver, there was only a couple of Grand Prix tracks and one of those was uh, a couple of street Grand Prix circuits and one of those was, let's say, a light version, uh, Melbourne, because it's part street, part, you know, feeling like a normal Grand Prix circuit. So we're seeing a lot more. Now, obviously, the interest is there from the cities because it drives people to the hotels, into the restaurants. And, you know, from an economic point of view, you can see how it works. You know, obviously, when you're at something like Silverstone, it's in the heart of Northamptonshire, difficult for me to say. Um, and, um, and you know, I guess people are spread over a wide area. But it, it's it's interesting that when we look at you know how the safety has improved in Formula One over the years, a lot of people might not consider street circuits that you know fitting in in terms of safety. But um, they they certainly give us a lot of spectacle and incidents and accidents. So where, where do you sit with the fact we're going to have eight of the twenty four Grand Prix going forward uh, will be street circuits? Well, I mean, in terms of a ratio. Uh, I don't think that is that alarming because if when we had 16 Grand Prix, um, and, and remember we've lost, you know, Valencia was a was a street circuit and that's where our, our great friend and, and pal had the most horrific accident, Mark Webber. So um, I think it, we, we mustn't underestimate that I still think that street circuits can give incredibly good value for money in terms of uh, excitement and performance and stuff. But Historically, they are naturally slower. They are going to be slower than Silverstone. They're going to be slower than, than Suzuka. Uh, and we've already talked, and, you know, let's not forget, Suzuka could be up for grabs soon as well because I know that Osaka is looking at possibilities of, of doing a street circuit. So we just need to be careful as to how far does this go because it needs, like everything in, in life, there needs to be a good balance. You know, we, we're just looking at different things in terms of tennis and when they have grand slams. I just would like to see a Formula One would create a little series within a series, which could be might be something for for Stefano to look at. So five major major Grand Prix, the ones that have been there the longest, like Silverstone, like Germany, like Monaco, like wherever, and then and Monza, and you have not so many extra points for there, but you just have a championship within the championship. So in other words, he, this guy has won so many majors, that kind of thing. It just gives us another another little clip for the press to get their head around and to add value to. Yeah, I, I get where you're coming from on that. So it would be the classic Grand Prix, your, your Monza's, your Monaco's, yeah. your Spa. I'm only talking about classics. Yeah, Silverstone and whatever else has been on there for many years. Yeah, I can, I can see that as being 
uh, an interesting little additional uh, focus. In terms of other big news this month, uh, Charles Leclerc has extended on a multi-year basis his contract at Ferrari. Now, he's a young man, a very nice young man, as you know. Um, statistics, you know, 23 pole positions from 125 Grand Prix, 30 podiums. But rather worryingly, he's only had five wins. So I'm a believer and I, and I think that he just needs a bit of consistency of performance from the, the Ferrari car to give him the results and the confidence that will come from that. Um, but it is interesting that Ferrari very much committed to him, believe in him as their potential future world champion. Where do you think um, that leaves his teammate Carlos Sainz? It's still, his contract runs until the end of this year. And, and how important do you think it is for Charles to have that multi-year deal? I'm 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 confused by by this. I can see why Ferrari have obviously panicked a little bit because clearly um, they, beyond any doubt, they know in the short term they're not going to get Max Verstappen, which is maybe everybody's favourite. And if I was Ferrari, uh, I'd break the bank to get that because if Ferrari are ever going to be great, I mean they did something amazing to get Michael Schumacher, um, but they had to bring a whole team of people with them, as we know. Uh, Todd particularly, but, you know, the group of people that made that so successful. Yeah, Ross so, Braun. Yeah, Rory Byrne, Rory everybody Byrne, yeah. like that. You know, they were a fantastic group of people. Fantastic. And they were fundamentally the same people that had started with Bennett, and so they won championships there, so it went on from there. Anyway, um, where do I see... Uh, Ferrari are probably looking and say, well, look, Lewis Hamilton is probably perfect for us, but he's too old, perhaps, and he is committed to Mercedes already. I don't think Ferrari had many options. I think uh, Leclerc was as good as what they were going to get, and they decided to jump in case somebody else came in for him. And um, clearly, I have to have another look around the field because it was a bit of a surprise to me, and it was a surprise to me because they must have been coerced that they could visualise that this was the best that they could ever, ever hope for in Ferrari. And I think at the same token, they need to do that with science because I think as a pairing, it's a very nice pairing, very together. And um, we, we saw already last year, science won a race. So there's no doubt that he can win. The, the Carlos science position I find interesting because I totally agree with you. I think they're a great pairing and they seem to get along, uh, focused, professional. But rumours are around that Audi are targeting him uh, as a team leader uh, when they come in with their uh, full squad in 2026. So they've got a little bit of time. What would you, if you were his manager, what would you advise Carlos to do? Go with Sauber, okay, owned by Audi. Do we really believe they can mount a world championship being based where they are and all of the, the, the difficulties that will have in terms of bringing the sort of lead talents or... Am I living in the past on that one? And the modern time, we'll see them be able to, with budget caps and all the rest of it, design and build a brilliant engine, stick it in an adequate car, and then win Grand Prix and World Championship. David, I have to... A lot of this, uh, for me, is what happened in the past. And very often it repeats itself. And... I sat back and I, 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 we talked on the show with Ralph Schumacher about going to Toyota and everyone thought that Toyota with all the money and with all the expertise and everything that they could do um, and that, that Honda had pulled out so therefore there was a clear, clear path for them. They were shocking, miserable. There was a real poor effort that Toyota did in Formula 1 and they scurried well out of it and they haven't come back. The same 
you could say, happened with BMW. I mean, Kubica won a race, but it wasn't really a race or whatever. Um, the quality of their engine at BMW is, is for me, the best engine in the world um, in terms of a road car basis. I just think it's so strong and so good. Uh, it's not necessarily matched up with, with, with um, styling and various other things, or it's a matter of choice. But I would have thought that BMW and Toyota would come in with a huge bang. So therefore, you're, you're assuming that Audi are going to come back just because they've won some various things in Le Mans and stuff like that. Now, I know we want to wish Alan McNish, who's a very close friend of yours, brought up in your town or your village, as you call it. And we all both love Alan and we wish him every success, whatever he's doing there. Uh, and he he's so smart, he will make sure that he has the right people around him. But I don't care what anyone says. It's a five-year plan to get Audi to even get close to winning a race. And I don't care what driver they have in it. There's a massive learning curve. I learned that. I realized how tough it was. And I think that Audi, despite all the money they've got, they have an uphill battle. Okay, well, look, I, I think it'd be good to get Alan on the podcast, actually, so that's a, a good show. Sure. We'll get him... Uh, I'm, not sure he'll, I'm not sure he'll tell us uh, his innermost secrets. He might tell them to you over a few pints. No, no, he's the <laughs> son of a car dealer. He'll keep his cars very close to his chest. Um, uh, but I'm just picking up on something you say there with no understanding of other than you know being a driver in, in a team, but you, you as, a, as a team owner. Why, why five years? You know, it took, as it happens, it took Red Bull five years to get themselves in a winning situation. But why does it take that long? Yeah, but Red Bull, let's not forget, they had people like you there to help them along. They they took over, if you like, the coals or the fire or the embryo of whatever it was with a Jaguar, uh, which was not a, a poor team. They were a strong team. And so, therefore, even to them taking five years, and you know what money the Didier uh, Matisic threw into that program and he acquired the best people so I would not assume that Audi or if you're telling me Audi can come in and beat McLaren and come in and beat the likes of uh, even Aston Martin perhaps or, or, or Ferrari for that matter or anyone else it's going to be a big struggle look it doesn't happen that easy I think there's only six teams in the last 30 years that have won multiple Grand Prix. And that's so that kind of makes it very concise, doesn't it? It gives big lead, if you like, to, to somebody like Red Bull and Ferrari and McLaren. Uh, Williams have to come back, and who knows, they probably will come back. But, um, you know, even when Prost came uh, with the Peugeot originally and then afterwards with the Renault, I, I, I just think new teams on the way, trying to compete against the existing teams, it's a hard job. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah. I bumped into someone at Silverstone, um, who I won't, won't mention their name, but a senior person that's been advising on uh, the Andretti bid for Formula One. And I hadn't appreciated that they've actually got a number of people working on that project. They've got extensive designs for the factory, they've got Cadillac on board, and they've actually got 
a full wind tunnel model as well of the car. So is that kind of false hope investment or is it just absolute belief that once they get their entry, they'll, they're already up and running, so to speak, rather than having to then push the, the green button? Where, where, where do you see that? For me, if they compete in Formula One and they're, they're in or around the... the what was Toro Rosso, um, of course, or Alfa Romeo. We saw how hard it was for Haas to, to make that transition. And, you know, remember that Haas had um, the second engine of Ferrari, so they could dismiss a lot of the transmission uh, worries, concerns, uh, and the power, power plant. Um, Andretti has a, a brand new engine to do. It's, uh, look, I, I cannot tell you how bigger drama that was. Would I want to go through that again? Not in a million years. I, I, I just, so many sleepless nights, so much aggravation, so many things not happening, so many heartaches and failures and the engine blowing up and the gears not fitting and you send off and you're waiting and then you're waiting to, to go to the first race and all the parts aren't there. Oh my God, David, you just would not want to do that. <laughs> that's, that, that's hardship in the hardest <laughs> core form you could ever imagine. No, no, no. Um, I wish him well. Look, Michael is a lovely guy. The Andretti family steeped in history about motor racing. So, but I just hope that they have enough about them that they can get them up into the mm, the back half of the grid because that's where it's really tough. But if they think they're going to come in and and compete against the likes of what we've already said, you know, the top four or five teams, it's a big ask particularly for the engine, really, because they're coming into an engine at 26 where the, f the regulations will have changed. And remember, if you look at the major teams at the moment, and we'll talk about Red Bull, they're well underway. They have a huge group of people looking at the new specifications, what's the requirement for the new regulations for 26 engine spec. Um, so... You know, these people aren't just sleeping uh, and going to the race next week and come back and forgetting about it. There's a whole group of different people, as you well know, because you've been in so many teams. But you, just the, the, the belief, the building, and I, I think Formula One has been a huge lesson to me because it makes you prepare. And Bernie was exactly that. It's about being a great visionary. Bernie could see what was happening, so he would target 26 as the new engine, so we would have a certain number of people doing that, same as Jordan did. So I just hope, for me, I just hope that Andretti comes and does a good job. Well, they've got to get that entry, first of all. So let's wait and see whether that actually materialises. Um, we're just about getting into launch season. The cars are going to be unveiled. Various teams have announced the dates of which they will be unveiling their car. What, what did that mean to you? You know, for me, it represented the hopes and desires of increased performance relative to your your competitors. You know, when you're in the middle of a season, you, you've already started to see where you're strong, where you're weak. And if if you're too far away from having a winning car, you know, it just feels that you're you're laying the foundations for the following year. And a new car, everyone's always excited. You know, no one's ever launched a new car and gone, it doesn't look good and it doesn't represent a step forward in the wind tunnel and all that sort of thing. But uh, any, any sort of recollections from your time of launching new cars? Did you always have a brand new car or did you ever do carryover cars? No, we never did. Uh, Gary Anderson was very fussy right from the very beginning. He would... 
identify certain areas of the car could be better and, you know, he would implement them. And I'd say to him, Gary, surely we're able to carry on the same chassis. He said, absolutely no chance. So um, any saving on the budget in that area would be dismissed within uh, within seconds. Um don't talk to me. I'm the, probably the worst person to talk about launching cars because I believe razzmatazz sells things and getting the thing out there uh, both visually and, and radio-wise as well um, <laughs> has a massive upside and it gives the team that little bit of a, a bump. Of course, it doesn't help if the car is crap. Yeah, Ferrari tend to roll their car out at Tefiarano, a lot of history there, so people probably, you know, the journalists enjoy going to, to live part of that. Uh, Red Bull will be at their factory and uh, or campus, as they call it now, in, in Milton Keynes. I believe Racing Bulls, which is the new name for Alpha Tauri, are doing a launch in America. So it will be interesting to see if there's any surprises out of those launches and whether there's any... Um, revolutions in terms of uh, car design. So there's not been a big change in regulations for this year. So I'm not expecting to see uh, a, a, a very different looking car, but I may be wrong. EJ, I'm going to move it along to our anchors because we've had a couple of questions that have been sent in. One from Michael Davies, and it's a simple one, which is what is our first motorsport memory? So if I fire away, my first memory would have been at a kart track because my, my father sponsored some drivers in long circuit karting, which meant I, I spent a lot of time as a kid going to Donington, Cadwell, uh, Silverstone, you know, British Kart Grand Prix. And I loved it, you know, just being a fan, being at a racetrack. So I've spent most of my life at, at racetracks since long before I realized I would start racing, which in those days uh, you started at 11. What about yourself, actually? I'm not even sure where your first introduction to motorsport was. Yeah, I was very late, unlike you, and uh, didn't have it anywhere near the family or wasn't anywhere really in Ireland. In fact, the only one, my first memory really, was going and doing uh, a couple of kart races, started in, in Jersey and then came back and raced in Ireland. And I remember going in Grafton Street and I copped on the other side of the road. I said, oh my God, that's John Watson. And he was such a hero in my mind. Everything, because he had just done his Formula 3 and then he'd made into the Brabham Formula 1 at the back of the grid in Formula 1. And um, so meeting somebody like me, he inspired me because I liked him. And for those people out there, the anchors, you might ask, who was the very first person ever to drive a Jordan F1 car? It was John Watson because I had held him and still do hold him in the highest esteem. Uh, he gave me huge amounts of vast knowledge and input because I think John has that in his mind. He's a great broadcaster, as you know, and uh, I've tried desperately to get him on the show at DC, but he's fobbing me off. I might need you to go around and knock <laughs> on his door. Sure. If you can't persuade him, I don't think I'll be able to persuade him. No, I can't. He told me to get fucked oh, last really? week. Why? Why would he not come on? Is it a duel on money or something? Oh, look, I, just, I, yeah. I said, look, we've just done Jody Schechter and everyone said I'll never get him. And, and he was said, I'm really surprised. I said, actually, John, uh, Jody said some really nice things about you in the show and, uh, and afterwards. And uh, so I hope he's thinking about it. But my guess is that once John makes his mind up, I think we're on a loser here, but I'll, I'll have another go. Maybe he'll come on and, and really expose something we've not heard before. Maybe, maybe he could take over my job here. Maybe he'd make me redundant <laughs> because the way Adrian Newey did the programme the last time, I thought Adrian was great, by the way. I mean, it was it, it, the only reason 
I must tell the listeners this. The only reason Adrian was quite keen to do it, one, because it was considered to be fun. You weren't around. I put the, I put the, the muscle on him to make sure he came and did it. But the fact that the whiskey was, uh, he knows what Jody is like. Jody is a savage when he gets to that, that 60% proof whiskey of his. It's just fatal. Um, but we all had a good drink of that and we all had a good show. But we missed you, DC. I have to say, you were sadly missed. It's the first time I've ever done the show without you. And it's not the same. Right. Other question. Sean Beveridge has asked, uh, what is a typical week like for an F1 driver and team owner or manager during the season? Well, again, if I fire away, my, my week was based around physical training preparation, connecting with the team and the engineers, and then testing. You know, so we we sort of, back in those days, had the two-week cycle. So a Grand Prix every couple of weeks, and then you'd leave the Grand Prix track on a Sunday night, get back to home. Monday was recovery. You'd do a recovery ride or something like that. And then Monday night, I would travel to the next test track. And I'd spend three days testing in Spain or whatever. And then I would typically then go to a promotion for the the main partner, sponsor of the team. And that, at my McLaren time, was uh, West Cigarettes. So we'd be somewhere in Eastern Europe, not encouraging people to smoke, but those who had already decided to smoke, encouraging them to choose West Cigarettes was always what we were told. And then I'd get home on the weekend and I would have Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday as part of my training program building up for the next Grand Prix. So there was a, a real sort of routine to how you you built towards races. But I, I suspect for you, it was a lot more varied because you were running the race team, but you trusted your your team manager to get on with that. But you were responsible for finding the money to pay everybody. So were you traveling all over the world and bringing in the cash? Well, it was very different. And um, it was one of the reasons, uh, because I could never do... Um, three and four and five meetings a day uh, throughout Europe. So I'd either do a rental deal or try and buy or whatever, have access or facilities for a private plane. And I think a lot of people think that it's a huge, unnecessary luxury to have. But when you need to be able to get to these people, you cannot be relying on... Uh, airports and aircraft. I know it sounds pretty crass. It's an excuse to have a private plane, but I can just I can see why Formula One people have private planes, particularly the team bosses. But a typical week for me, come back. First of all, there would be a race between Frank Williams, uh, Flavio, myself, um, uh, Tom Walkinshaw, sadly not with us anymore, and a few more. And we all had planes or uses of planes uh, out of Kidlington. And it would be a mad dash to see who would get back first. So everyone would try and come back Sunday evening as quick as possible. For me, Monday was different. It was always the same. Uh, I always addressed each and every one of the staff we would have a full staff meeting at about nine o'clock, ten o'clock, when the cars were back and they were on the trestles and the first uh, stripped down and the cars were being uh, stripped apart. Um, and I would, Gary Anderson would talk about the technical things, what went right, what went wrong. If it was a good weekend, if it was a bad weekend, or it was a complete shocker. And then I would say where we need to find extras and what we need to do is is combine and let's be strong. We're in this trench together. We need to pull together. You know, it's a very strong motivational thing. And I did that every Monday. Uh, and I'm not sure if many teams do that, but I thought it worked for us because I needed to embrace the family attitude, the requirement that we 
we owe it to each and every one of us to, to find something extra inside ourselves to make the team better. And we commit ourselves to finding something every week that however small, because we always used to talk about it's the tiny little things all combined to make that fraction of a second that makes it worthwhile. And we always used to try and see, and, and a little note um, with all the, the crew and the team, at the end of the year we'd have little allocations and prize givings and stuff like that for the person who would find the, the most little advantage that they could to the team running. Uh, small things and everything. And you'd be surprised at the people who came up with really clever ideas. Um, so that was the first thing. Um, then you guys went off uh, obviously um, testing which is obviously the thing to do and and I very seldom ever did that um, and you rightly say I would either be addressing sponsors or, or making programs or myself and Ian Phillips really were the key people in our place um, he he would set out a target list of what we had to achieve for that day or that week and that's how it went but I would say from the beginning of the season, which was always in March till the end of uh, um, uh, end of October, fundamentally, and now obviously goes into December. But uh, as Marie rightly said the other day, she said I was away a lot. I, I would not be at home for very few days of that of those eight months, nine months. So. People think that it's a very glamorous life, but it's a very tiring life. It's very arduous and it's also very demanding. So um, do not go into Formula One if you do not want to put the hours in because I promise it will grind you down. And when things are going good, it'll be brilliant. And when things are going bad, you will say to you, what am I doing here? This is absolutely the worst situation. Yeah, it, it's a fascinating world, isn't it? It's relentless uh, the the constant search for performance and pace and money and it, it's a very addictive place to live, isn't it? Because everybody has to be coming up with new ideas for every Grand Prix. Otherwise, you're simply not in the race. But uh, that is why when I retired, uh, I, I sort of realized everyday life is somewhat underwhelming in comparison to the supercharged world of Formula One. Um EJ, look, we could continue to keep going through and, and chatting uh, for for you know a lot longer. But uh, conscious of your time, conscious that you have forty five years of marriage to go celebrate with uh, the lovely Marie and your family. So I think we should wrap it up at this point and say, well. To our listeners, uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to them. And if you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others and leave us a rating and review. We'd very much appreciate it. Eddie would love you for it. Ah. And you can follow us on social media with the handle at F1 for success. Thanks again, EJ. And from myself, we'll see you all next week. Anchors, we love you.